Well, let me welcome you into week number four of five. This is uh, the next to the last week where we will be in the book of Job. And for those of you who are regular attenders of Brookstone, you know that really since April the 17th, since Easter weekend, we have been thinking about this idea of how is it that we can keep hope alive. You remember we've talked about the fact that when circumstances come up in your life which would seem to drill holes in your hope bucket and hope begins to drain away because of circumstances or situations or the world environment, what's happening in our world, maybe what's happening in your personal world, how can we keep hope alive? And we began answering that question by thinking back to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now here's the thing, this is not just church speak, it's absolute truth. Without Jesus, there is no hope. There's not. Our hope is kept alive in the fact that Jesus Christ has died for our sins and has been raised from the dead. That's where we began. And then following the week of Easter, we began working through the book of Job. And we've discovered by looking at Job's suffering and more importantly, how Job uh, responded to his suffering, we've learned how to keep hope alive. You remember in the beginning we talked about the fact that if we're going to keep hope alive, we have to be sure that we're listening to the right voices. And we, we looked at the voices of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, his three friends, and they were the wrong voices. They had the right heart in the beginning, but they brought the wrong message to him because of their misunderstanding of what was going on in his life. And so they were the wrong voices to listen to. Now, last week we talked about the voice of Elihu, and that Elihu was the right voice, that Elihu spoke truth into Job's life that would help him to keep hope alive. Today we're going to talk about uh, keeping hope alive by surrendering our lives fully to the Lord. And you may have heard that theme in our worship time together this morning, thinking about uh, surrendering all that I am and I surrender all and standing with arms high and heart abandoned, fully surrendered to the Lord. Elihu, last Sunday we discovered, was this young man who was the fourth voice after Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, Elihu came speaking to Job the truth about how he should respond to God and about the ways that he had uh, responded to God incorrectly. If you were here last Sunday, you might remember we talked about how that Elihu rebuked Job because he had made his suffering about himself. He began to focus completely on himself and believe that he didn't deserve what was happening in his life. And he began to argue on the basis of his rights and what God was doing wrong. And Elihu said, don't make your suffering about yourself. It's not about you. Second thing that Elihu said was, Job, God doesn't answer to you. It's a pretty good word for all of us to hear. God doesn't answer to any of us, right? He is the Lord and he does not answer. He's not accountable to us. And the third thing that Job heard from Elihu he said, Job, what you need to do is to humble yourself before the Lord. There's a lot of pride in your responses, Job. There's a bit of arrogance in your responses to God, and you need to humble yourself before the Lord. You see, what Job uh, heard from Elihu, what Elihu understood that, that Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar did not, was that Job's sin was not the cause. Do you remember this principle? Job did not sin to cause his suffering, but Job had sinned in response to his suffering. And that's where a lot of us stumble and mess up. When we end up in a, in a deep valley, when, when life gets hard and the circumstances are difficult and our hearts are broken, very often, far too often, our responses to God are like Job's and they are filled 
with sin. And so Elihu pointed that out, really with a lot of humility, uh, he pointed that out to Job. Now, do you remember that last week I said to you that Elihu was the fourth voice to speak to Job, but there's another voice. There's a fifth voice. And the fifth voice that was going to speak to Job was the voice of God. And he would follow, God would follow the preaching of of, uh, Elihu. And Elihu had this very divine privilege. I mean, you couldn't call it anything else. This very divine privilege of introducing the voice of God. Elihu's preaching begins in chapter 32. It covers six chapters, and it ends in chapter number 37. But as you begin reading chapter number 37, it becomes apparent that there is a storm, literally a storm, gathering while Elihu is preaching. In fact, turn back one page to chapter 37 and verse 1 and and listen to how Elihu says, Hey, Job, At this, my heart is trembling. My heart is moved out of its place. Listen, Job, hear attentively the noise of his voice, the sound that goes out of his mouth. Can you imagine the rumbling thunder in the distance as the storm begins to gather those flashes of lightning in the clouds? He directs it, verse 3 says, under the whole heaven, and his lightning is going to the ends of the earth. Verse number 4, after the lightning, his voice roars and thunders with the voice of his excellency. It seems apparent to me that that Elihu is describing literally what's happening, that this storm is gathering, and that Elihu understands, he perceives, that God is coming in the storm, that God is going to speak to Job out of the storm. Can you imagine the... um, the weightiness of that and the thrill and at the same time the, the, the terrifying nature of that, God is coming onto our little gathering here and he is going to speak directly to Job. In fact, imagine, if you will, Elihu speaking as that storm is gathering. Maybe it looked a little bit like this. Look at the screens. Maybe that storm began to gather. As Elihu said, regarding the Almighty, we cannot understand him. He's excellent in power and in judgment and in justice, and he will do no wrong. Men, therefore, Job, ought to reverence him. And with that, God had arrived. And now in chapter 38, verse 1, God will speak. By the way, before we read this passage, would you praise God with me that he speaks to us from his word in these days, not out of a storm? The Bible says in the book of Hebrews that God in in old times, in past times, God spoke in a lot of different ways to the prophets and through various means, but in these last days, he has spoken unto us through his son. The word, the written word and the living word, he speaks to us. Well, to Job, he speaks out of that gathering storm. And listen to what he says, Job chapter 38, beginning in verse number one. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, out of that mighty wind. The Lord answered Job and said, and I'll read this in my best God voice. <laughs> Who is this that darkeneth counsel? By words without knowledge. Gird up now thy loins like a man. I will demand of thee, 
and you will answer me. I want you to write down, if you're uh, a note taker, I want you to write in your notes that, that, uh, that what, you is, what you experience in verse number two and three, when God comes to speak to Job, is God's gracious, write it down this way, God's gracious invitation to Job. And I have to tell you, even as I say that and I read these verses, it doesn't feel like a gracious invitation, does it? It feels more like a terrifying confrontation, but it's not. It is God's absolute unspeakable mercy that he would enter into a conversation with this man. Now, we've learned in this teaching series about Job that he was a righteous man. Remember chapter number one and verse number eight? God says of Job, he's my servant. Job's a servant of the Lord. And he is a servant who is righteous and who fears the Lord and who turns away from evil. There's no, no man like him, God said, in all the earth. He is a godly guy. But we've also learned that he's a, he's a frail and a fal- faltering guy. Because as we've talked about, his response to God in his suffering was filled with pride. It was filled with anger. And Job demanded of God that he answer him regarding the suffering. Job, if I could say it this way, called God on the carpet. What do you think you're doing? This isn't right. I've been living for you. I don't deserve this. Why are you doing this to me? He had called God out. And it was that response, as I've mentioned, that was his sinful response. But yet, rather than crushing Job... Rather than God responding to Job's, what are you doing? And going, that's what I'm doing. Rather than crushing him in his majesty and his might and his holiness, God comes and he says, Job, let's talk. I'll ask you some questions and you answer me. This is the mercy of God, friends. This is the amazing grace of God. Not only to Job, but to us. Because all of us are like Job. We're all faltering. We're all broken. And the grace of God brings this merciful, mighty, and majestic God to enter into our lives and to engage in a conversation with us. How merciful and gracious of him. In fact, the psalmist was overwhelmed by that truth. In Psalm 8, verse 4, he says, What is man that you're mindful of him? I can't even believe you would take note of me, he says. It's amazing that you would even acknowledge my existence or the son of man that you would care for him. Truth is, we deserve God's indifference at the very least. And what we really deserve is God's judgment. We deserve for God to punish us for our sin and for our rebellion and for our hard-heartedness, for our disobedience. We deserve God's judgment. And yet God invites us into a conversation. Over and over in the scriptures, you hear this voice of God, not just to Job, but throughout the scriptures. You hear this voice of God saying, let's have a conversation. Do you remember what Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18 says? God speaking, come now, let's reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be as white as wool. Though they're red like crimson, I'll make them as white as snow. That's the mercy of Almighty God. Can I just say it to you this way? Is there some sin in your life today that you would just say, man, I need to be cleansed from that stuff. Let me tell you the truth about God. He is saying to you, why don't you just come? Let's just 
reason together. God is saying the word reason together means let's settle this thing. Let's work this out. I've got a solution. I am the solution. Isaiah 55, he says it again. God speaks, come, all of you who are thirsty. Are you thirsty for eternal life? Are you thirsty for a new life? God says, come. Let's have a conversation about that. Come and drink. You got any money? You don't need it. Don't worry about it. Come and buy without price. He says, just come. Let's have a conversation. It's the same voice. Isaiah records the same voice that spoke in Matthew eleven twenty eight, when that voice now became incarnate in the flesh of Jesus. And Jesus spoke in Matthew eleven twenty eight, and he gave this invitation. Same invitation from Isaiah 1, Isaiah 55. He said, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Are you under the burden of your sin? Come on. Are you under the burden of religion, trying to be right with God by keeping all the rules? Just come to me. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. He invites us to come. John chapter 21, to the beleaguered and the hungry disciples, Jesus said, come and dine. I've got everything you need. Come gather at my table. And in Revelation chapter 22, the very last chapter of the Bible, God speaks again and he says, the spirit and the bride say, come. And in fact, I didn't mention it, but in Genesis, when Adam and Eve had sinned, it was God who came into the garden and said to them, hey, Adam, where are you? Come, let's settle this thing. The Bible begins with God's invitation. It ends with God's invitation. And all the way through is this invitation from a merciful God, come, let's reason together. Praise God, that's the kind of God that he is. Well, this is his invitation to Job, right? He says to Job in chapter number 38, let's have a conversation. And so can, can we observe it? Can we be a fly on the wall for just a few minutes and watch this conversation unfold between God and Job? Let's eavesdrop a little bit. Now, one of the things that you'll discover when you watch God and Job interacting, beginning in chapter number 38, is that God's conversation with us is always intended to bring about revelation. God's invitation to have a conversation, or God's conversation with us, is all about revelation. So I don't want you to misunderstand here, okay? So let me just say it plainly. When God engages with you or me in a conversation, everything that matters to us matters to him, right? It's not that those things are unimportant, but here's what you need to know. His conversation with us, if y'all are listening, shout amen. amen. It's not a negotiation. God doesn't negotiate. Okay? God does not negotiate. God dictates. He's the Lord. The second thing I want you to know is that God doesn't have a conversation with us in order to get information from us. He doesn't need information from us. That doesn't mean that we don't pour out our hearts to him because he said, bring all your cares to me. But he's not going, okay, let me write that down. I didn't understand that. Wow, oh my goodness, he's writing. No, no, no. He doesn't need that information. He's got it. He knew it already. So the conversation is about revelation. It's about God revealing to us what is true. What's true of us and what's true of him. And so that's what he's doing for Job. Now, the first thing that he reveals to Job are Job's weaknesses. When he begins to talk to Job, he begins to reveal to Job how he is weak. Now, I should say to you that there was nobody in Job's life prior to chapter 1, prior to his suffering, 
There was nobody in Job's life that perceived him as weak. Nobody. Remember, he was the greatest man of the East. And so he was not perceived weak by anyone. I would submit probably he considered himself more weak than anybody else considered him. He understood his own weakness more than anybody did. But he did not consider himself weak. I'm sorry, others didn't consider him weak. And when his suffering began to bear heavy on him, he began to rise up with this protest against the Lord. And so he began to argue with God, as I've mentioned. And God says to him, Job, let me tell you what one of your weaknesses is. Write this down. He says, Job, you don't know what you don't know. You don't know everything, and you don't even know the things you don't know. Now, Job thought he knew everything. When he begins to contend with God, he thought he had all the answers. God said, Job, you don't have all the answers. Look at it. I'm in chapter 38 and verse number uh, 2. Who is this, God speaks, who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Let me return to chapter 40, verse number 8. He asks almost the identical question. He says to Job, will you disannul my judgment? Will you call me wrong? Will you condemn me so that you'll be right? Job, you think you're right and I'm wrong? Is that what you're saying? Chapter 38, verse number 2. Who is it speaking all these words to me? And yet he speaks words without knowledge. And when you speak these words without knowledge, Job, you're just uh, muddying my decisions. You're calling into question my judgments and my counsel and my will. And so he says, Job, you, you're asking questions you don't even know the answers to. You're asking questions like you know everything, but Job, let me ask you a few questions. Well, here they come. Look at the questions beginning in verse number four. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Job, you, you want to you wanna ask questions? Let's start with this one, big boy. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth. Declare. If you know, tell me. Look at verse number five. Who laid the measures thereof? If you know, who stretched the line upon it? Hey, Job, who was it that took the divine measuring tape and measured out the earth? Do you, do you know who did that? Were you there, Job, when that happened? Look at verse number six. Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? How does this earth stay in its orbit? How, what's it standing upon? Job, uh, do you know who laid the cornerstone of the earth? Hey, Job, verse 7, do you remember when all the planets sang together and all the angels sang out in praise to my creation? You were there, right? Let's talk about that. Tell me about that. He says, Job, you're speaking about things you don't know anything about. Secondly, he says to him, not only do you know about the beginning of creation, but he says in verses 16 and verse 18, do you know about the extent of creation? Have you entered into the springs of the sea, those fountains of the deep where the waters of the ocean come from? Do you, have you been there? Have you been to the bottom of the sea? Have you walked the bottom of the sea and searched out the depths of the sea? Verse number 18, have you perceived the breadth of the earth? Tell me about it, Job, if you know all about it. Verse number 17, Job, have you peeked behind the gates of death? Do you know what it's like? beyond this life? Have the gates of death been opened unto you or have you seen the doors of the shadow of death? I love verses 19 and 20. He says, where is the way where the light dwells? Or as for the darkness, where is the place thereof? 
Job, could you take the light to its house? Could you, could you, could you take the, the darkness to the place where it lives? Job, do you understand creation? Do you understand um, uh, this, the creation that I rule over, verse number 21? Do you know these things because you were then born? Do you know these things because the number of your days is great? Do you, do you see what God is doing? He's saying, Job, you're lodging all of these arguments at me. Your attitude toward me is one as if you know it all, and yet you're speaking of things you know nothing about. Can I ask a question? Don't raise your hand. Have you ever done this? Toward the Lord? We do it frequently toward other people. We speak about things we don't understand at all. Anybody been on social media lately? (laughs) There's a bunch of that going on on social media. There's a whole lot of people on social media talking a lot about things they don't know anything about. But they're an expert at the keyboard, right? We do that sometimes in relationships. We do it in friendships. We do it in the office. We do it in in our marriages. We just come in, blah, 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 and we have no clue of the situation. We don't know what we're talking about. And we do it with God. And God said, Job, you're speaking of things that you don't know. That's a weakness in you. The second thing that he says to Job is, and this sounds harsh, but it's not. He says, Job, you are utterly inglorious. <laughs> it's a really good word for Job and for all of us. You are utterly inglorious. It means that like the moon, which has no glory of its own, without the sun shining on it and reflecting the glory of the sun, the moon is quite literally a cold uh, rock spinning around the earth. He says, Job, this is the way you are. Absent the fact that you are made in my image, there is no glory in you whatsoever. Let me show it to you. It's chapter number 40 and verse number 10. He says in that verse, Job, what you might want to do is to deck yourself, adorn yourself with majesty and with excellency. Array yourself with glory and beauty. Hey, Job, if you're going to question me, the eternal God who has made all things and who sustains and upholds all things... Then, Job, here's what I suggest you do, sir. You put some glory on yourself. You robe yourself in some majesty. You adorn yourself with some eminence. If you're going to talk to me that way, he says, Job, you are utterly inglorious. Can, can I just say something to you? All of, if you're listening, shout amen. amen. Here's the truth. While we all throughout life, we kind of jostle about, you know, I want to be first, I want to be the best, I want to be the brightest, I want to look the best, I want to, I want to, I'm just going to try to have my glory shine in this earth. We're all just shining among other inglorious people. But absent the grace of God in our lives, there is no glory about us at all. And one of the best revelations that will ever come to you is if you will understand that. He says, Job, You don't know what you don't know, and Job, you are utterly inglorious. Paul figured that out. Romans chapter 7, he records it when he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, I live in a body of death. Well, so every conversation that God has with us is about revelation. He reveals to Job his weaknesses. Secondly, this conversation reveals to Job God's glories. Uh, I won't take the time, of course, to read through all of chapter 38, 39, 40, and 41, but all of these chapters are, are a discussion where God is revealing to Job not only how weak Job is, but how glorious God is. 
He, he does it in chapter 38. We've already been looking at verses 3 and 4 and 5 where he talks about the earth. He says, I made that. I, I laid the foundation of that. I've created all things. He says in verse number 8, by the way, I put the door up for the sea, Job. You know that, Job? You know all that water out there in the ocean? I'm the one that said, stop right there, no further. Uh, Job, do you know that I oversee and I am the Lord of uh, space, of all of creation? Look at verse 31 of chapter 38. Can you bind the sweet influences of Pleiades? Or loose the bands of Orion? Can you bring forth Maseroth in his season? Or can you guide uh, Arcturus with his sons? He's talking about constellations. Do you rule over the constellations as I do? Do you know the ordinances of the heaven? Can you set the dominion thereof of, of the earth? Can you place the earth in the, in the heavens at the place it should be with the rotation it should have on the axis that it exists? Can you put it there perfectly so that life is possible? He says, Job, this is what I do. And he goes on in chapter 39 through chapter number 41 to do the same thing. Now, remember that this conversation that God has with Job is not intended to crush Job. It's the opposite. It's not intended to crush Job. It is intended to draw a contrast between Job and God so that Job will be converted. That's the whole point. You know what Job's biggest problem was when he was standing toe-to-toe to God and saying, why are you doing this? Is that in Job's mind, he and God were like this. And God comes to have a conversation, and with every part of that conversation, hey, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Hey, Job, where were you when I made the sea? Hey, Job, can you put the heavens and the planets in the space where they need to go? And he's ratcheting down Job's pride and his arrogance. And by doing so, he's ratcheting up his glory. So what began as Job standing toe-to-toe with God ends with Job and God like this. Now listen to me. For some of you in this room today, this is your biggest problem. Because when you think of God, you kind of feel like it's pretty much this way. Kind of do what I want to do and live like I want to live and think about God the way I want to think and respond to God the way I want to respond. It's all good. We're kind of like this. You know what God wants to do? And it'd be the greatest revelation in your life if suddenly you would realize that you can't crane your neck far enough up to see the glory of God. That's what the conversation's about. And he's saying to Job, I want you to understand who I am so that you'll realize what you are. And in so being, you will be converted. Well, this conversation did, in fact, lead to Job's conversion. He was faced with God's majestic glory. He was faced with this this elevated God and with his own frailties. And Job begins to break And in fact, when you read about Job's breaking, his breaking demonstrates for us kind of three steps to conversion. Let me show it to you. Look in chapter 40, verses 3, 4, and 5. Here you have this first bit of breaking. Chapter 40, verse 3, Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. Just near the beginning of the conversation, God begins to speak to him, reveal to him how inglorious Job is, how how he doesn't know what he thinks he knows. He begins to elevate his own glory, show himself to Job. And the first thing out of Job's mouth, when he finally speaks, 
These are his words. Listen, it, let's, don't miss this. Here is the first step to conversion. I am nothing. Do you know who gets saved? People who realize they're nothing. Strong people don't get saved. I, I don't mean people who are strong of character, strong of personality, strong of skills. I don't mean that. I mean that in order to be saved, the strong have to become weak. I, here's what I mean. I mean that Jesus said, if you want to enter into the kingdom, you've got to become like a little child. Job said, I am nothing. I'm vile. I'm insignificant. Verse 4, behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay my hand upon my mouth. I have nothing to say. Are you kidding me? He's been talking for 30 chapters. (laughs) He's been arguing with God. He's had a plenty to say. Until God reveals himself to him. And then he goes, I got nothing to say to you. That's the first step to conversion. You got to realize, not that you are unimportant, that you are nothing in relation to God Almighty. Number two, chapter number 42, verse one, you see the second step to conversion Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything and that no thought can be withheld from you. That's step number two. Step one, I'm nothing. Step two, you're everything. You can do all things. You know everything. There's nothing beyond you. I'm nothing and you are the Lord. That is the way you come to conversion. Where you recognize your own brokenness and you understand his glories and you surrender yourself to it. By the way, there's a word for this in the church. It's a Bible word. We call it conviction. In the old days, you used to call it Holy Ghost conviction. Right? It's conviction that says, I'm convicted by the fact that I'm broken. I'm nothing. I'm a sinner. And I'm convinced of his glory. And when I see his glory and my brokenness, what could I do but cry out for mercy? Third step to conversion, you see in chapter number 42, beginning in verse number 3, where he says in verse 3, Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? God had asked that question back in chapter 38. Job repeats it to him. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Um, My bad, he says, me. I'm the one that did that. I uttered things that I didn't understand, things too wonderful for me that I knew, knew not. Verse number four, here I beseech thee and I will speak. I will demand of you and you will declare of me. That, that's what God, that's what you said to me, that I would, you, I would have to answer to you. Here's what I've learned, verse five. I had only heard of you by the hearing of the year. But, oh God, I see you with my eyes now. You revealed yourself to me. In verse number six, and because I see you, I abhor myself in sackcloth and ashes. Loved ones, this is exactly where God wanted Job to get to. Where he would be sitting in ashes not because his family has passed away, his wife has rejected him, he's lost his wealth. He wanted Job sitting in ashes because Job understood the glory of God. And therefore he repented of his own sin. And so, because Job understood that God was everything and he recognized that he was nothing and he repented, then God restored him. God forgave his sin 
And God restored Job. And in fact, we'll read it next week as we close this series, how that God restored everything uh, and even more that Job had lost and his end was better than his beginning. Praise God for that gracious conversation, right? But do you know that this conversation that God had with Job has been repeated throughout the ages since it was had with Job countless times? It's the same conversation that God had with Moses in Exodus 3 at the burning bush. When Moses walked away from that shoeless, on-his-face encounter with God, walking to be the servant, to do what the Lord wanted him to do. It's the same conversation that Isaiah had with God in Isaiah chapter 6 when he sees the Lord and he says, I'm a man of sinful lips. And God said, I'm going to cleanse you and I want you to go and be my servant. It's the same conversation in Luke 5 that Peter had with Jesus. When Jesus is teaching on the boat and they cast out into the deep or push out into the deep and they let down the nets and they draw in so many fish at the command of Jesus, that the boat begins to sink and Peter says, get away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. You're the Lord. That's the same conversation. It's the same conversation that Saul of Tarsus had on the road to Damascus when Jesus confronts him and he says, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus. Now you go and serve me. Do you see it? It's the same gracious, merciful conversation that God has been having through the ages with broken people. And when I was 16 years old at a church out in the western part of our county, God had that conversation with me. And he told me how glorious he is and how broken I was. And I realized that I was nothing and he was everything and I repented and I was converted. And God may be having that conversation in some of your hearts right now. Because maybe for the first time in your life, you really understand you're not a pretty good guy, religious dude, somebody who really just kind of is, is, is moral and making it to heaven on your own. No, here's what you understand like you've never known it before. You're nothing. You're broken. You're a sinner. And you deserve the judgment of God. And what you understand more than you've ever understood it before is that God is so glorious and so mighty and so majestic that you could never have a relationship. He is unknowable to you outside of his grace. And so the only thing you can do is what Job did. Fall to your knees, cover your mouth, and say, I have nothing to say. I've seen you. I've seen myself. And I need your mercy. And if God's having that conversation with you, then here's my prayer that you will Trust in Christ. Let me close by telling you that when Job said, I am vile, it means I am insignificant, I'm nothing. It doesn't mean that he's nothing to God. We matter deeply to God. So much so that he sent his son Jesus to die for us. But it means that we understand that in ourselves, absent his grace compared to his glory, we're nothing. And we have no hope of relationship with him without his grace. Do you know him? I hope you do.